Well, you know, it's been a long time since I've been able to uh, make make uh, make this joke, Brandon. But I am up here in New England, in Washington D.C., having yes. a good time and lobster. Uh, having lobster. I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. I actually, you know, I I, uh, I I thought recently that I should start writing Yelp reviews. I don't know why. But I feel like, you know, I go to a lot of places and, and uh, I remember like I, I like to write those Yelp reviews that are like just like two or three sentences that are basically like you should go eat there. And, and that kind of like I always want to know like, hey, uh, I, I got like an hour and a half. I just want to go eat somewhere. Is it going to be good? Like I don't, I don't not want something fancy. Now, the problem is I am a strong believer in the uh, if you're on a five star system, a three star means you should go eat there. Right. And like. Four star is sort of like, you know, transcendent experience that you will remember for the rest of your life. And, you know, five star is like you would like kill your your beloved to eat there. You know what I mean? Like I, I want this like extreme gradient. So I'm always giving people three star ratings and they're uh, always writing back about how they can improve things. And it's like, I no, it, it was great. Right. Like, I mean, if I didn't like it, I would have given it a one or a two star. But. I'm sort of conscious that I'm screwing up the experience. Anyways, I was thinking I wouldn't write a review about this place because I think it's unfair. But I went to this one place, I think, down here below the Pivotal Labs offices called BLT or something. I don't know. It was, it was a nice steakhouse. But look, tell me if you've ever had this, Brandon. But they had this really confusing way of cooking their steak that ultimately I was unsatisfied with. I got the uh, the 16-ounce New York Strip which is a cut of meat that I think is merely a scam so that they can charge a lot more for a T-bone. I think they just need to get rid of the New York Strip and just give you the T-bone. It's ridiculous. But anyways, and they brought it out in like a little cast iron hot skillet thing, and it was like sizzling. And, you know, I order my steak rare, of course. Um, and the steak was perfectly cooked in the middle. Like it was rare. It was like room temperature. But because like whatever they did in this skillet and how they cook it, it was like extremely crispy on on the top and the bottom oh. and, and it just like totally threw me off and you know that taste that you get in a, in a cast iron skillet like if you like way overcook your onions and it tastes kind of yes. gritty like it had that taste and so like it like i don't know if that's like a thing that people up here in new england do with their steaks or something but i feel like the outside of your steak you want it to be like supple and soft like you know a 20 year old pair of cowboy boots that you've taken care of you don't want it crispy well a couple things to weigh in here first. One, don't know anything about BLTs. Can't uh, tell you one way or the other if that's good or bad. But I will say that is not a, uh, a Maryland Northeast kind of preparation. So I'll just throw out a recommendation. I think the, the place to go in D.C. is Charlie Palmer, Palmer's mm. uh, okay. if you're, like, you're going for the steak. So, and I think that's where like, all the, the politicals go as well. So if you, uh, you want to hobnob with some uh, politicians you know, and uh, get a little steak, you should go there. I don't know, but I, I think that it does feel like fajita-ish if they're bringing it out on a skillet, which, of course, is great for fajitas, not good for steaks. So that does – it's that's a weird thing. I, I don't know why they're doing that, yeah. and that does not denote uh, what I would consider a good steak. Yeah, and, and, and then just to close it out, and we'll get to our, uh, as I like to say – Nominal topic. Maybe that should be the name of my future podcasting company. Nominal topic. Nominal topic. Uh, and it is. I just looked it up. It is BLT Steakhouse. Um, yeah. The everything else about the place was awesome, right? So I went there to get a beer with my coworker after a meet up here. We had a good time. They had a great Belgian style beer. Hung out there. It was very crowded on a uh, Wednesday night. 
good sign, I guess. And uh, and then when you order the meal, they bring you uh, like this little toast with a chicken pate thing with some sort of raspberry compote thing on top. That was delicious. And then they bring you like this gigantic popover, which I've heard that word, but I don't really know what it is. A popover basically seems like a canonical croissant or something. Um, and that was phenomenal, right? Everything was great, and then and then they do the steak, this huh? weird steak thing. Well, where but. were you? Like, are you in DC? Like, where? Yeah, are the yeah, yeah, yeah. The pivot, in, uh, the pivotal are office. They in Bethesda? Are they? In DC? No, no, they're right downtown. Like, if you go up to the roof, you can like see the snipers that are covering the White House. Like, oh, they're on, they're on like Avenue I in Pennsylvania. I don't really know what I'm talking about, but yeah, yeah it's like so DC. It says it Northwest, Southeast. Northwest, uh, you know that part, right? It's I, very yeah. confusing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not only the road and street number, it's the actual yes. uh, geographic d- uh, direction. So I DC, know, very that. confusing town. Yeah. Very difficult to yeah. navigate for new yeah. people. Well, speaking of navigating things, that was that was my segue there. I, you know, this is this is something that I get annoyed at podcast people do. As we discuss another podcast, basically I can't tolerate myself if it wasn't me doing things, but they're always pointing out when they do a bad segue. But uh, you know, based on some conversation we were having last week in the episode, I think uh, I think I think I kind of had a, a a little nugget of idea, but you really fleshed it out that we should basically, and this is my sort of rephrasing, we should look at Ben Thompson as a way of looking at sort of like the kind of boutique analyst newsletter podcast sort of format of doing things, um, which I think is good. I mean, maybe sometime we'll do like a pure podcast thing, which I think would be interesting, but. Uh, wrapped up in the whole model that I think Ben Thompson and Horace Deju and to some extent Red Monk, sort of like the the lone wolf analyst outlet thing, <laughs> how 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 that works. And I think I think what we'll do this week, you know, it's not so much a uh, a close reading of one particular thing, but more describing uh, the model uh, that someone uses. And and we'll look at some of the uh, like the most recent article in particular, but. Um, I think I think that's the thing that we'll do on this podcast, this episode. Because I always forget it, and Brandon's always trying to wedge it in, you know, what you should do is join us in our Slack channel. If you go to softwaredefinedtalk.com slash Slack, thanks to uh, KillSSHJJ, you can sign up automatically. Join the Slack channel. There's, there's an exegesis uh, channel where we talk about uh, things related to this podcast. We got one for the normal Software Defined Talk podcast, and if you're really interested... We uh, we started to put the 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 things we're going to talk about in the next episode uh, in there, and uh, the discussion's going pretty good. Like I was talking with Brandon uh, last week, you know, in about a year, there'll probably be like a lot of discussion in there, so you can help us on our march to uh, too many things that I'll complain about having to catch up on, which uh, which I'm looking forward to. But yeah, you go to softwaredefinedtalk.com/slack, and uh, you can sign up for that. So Brandon, lay out what the deal with Ben Thompson is. Let's get into it. I like it. Well, as you mentioned, I think uh, Ben Thompson is one of the pioneers, or not pioneers, maybe one of the latest uh, celebrities to break through in the lone wolf analyst market. So to give a quick history, and there'll be a couple of good interviews with him that we'll put in the show notes that you can hear him tell his whole story in much more detail. But he was essentially somebody by his own description, sort of kind of aimless in his 20s, not sure what he wanted to do. I think he moved to Taiwan, uh, taught English as a second language to a bunch of people. I think evidently he, he met a woman, they got married, and then he decided he would go back uh, to get his MBA. So he got his MBA and he you know, wanted to figure out how he could apply 
much of the strategy conversations that go on uh, in the NBA world to actually create a business. And on top of that, as the story he tells goes, that he ended up moving back to Taiwan to be with his wife and I think near her family. So he was left, if you will, as a a Westerner in uh, in Taiwan trying to figure out how he could get into tech strategy uh, without being in San Francisco. And so what he did, I think, is definitely pretty bold. He went out and said, uh, there's a market for a newsletter. And I think its publication is three days is the newsletter. Uh, and then one day he does a free article. And so his whole business model, I don't know, maybe four days and, and one uh, free uh, article. You can yeah, it's, it's, it's something but, uh, like that. Basically, there, like there's that. one free thing. And yeah, because I think it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I don't know. Whatever. So, so his, his big thing was, you know, and I think we've heard this before, and even if we uh, reference Scott Galloway and his kind of talk about, you know, his version of newspapers is that, like, hey, people will pay for good content, quality content, if you charge for it. So he went, if, if you will, the consumer model applied to analysts, right? I think he charges, I think it's nine ninety nine a month or $100 a year. $100, yeah, yep. Get his, uh, you get his, his, all his newsletters. So, you know, what's interesting about this is that it's maybe not new, but it is something that, you know, he started, you know, I think he says even with like 300 Twitter followers and um, and just a dream. And so we, I think, you know, you did the math here, Cote, so I'll let you say it. But I think, you know, back of the napkin analysis at this point, a couple years into it, he looks like he's making probably easily over $200,000 a year yeah. by just... Uh, emailing these things. And so I think what it's interesting about this is like, you know, we talked a lot about Scott Galloway last week is sort of like the old model, like, like have some experience, right? Like start some companies, succeed or fail doesn't matter, right? Because you become a consultant, you write blogs, you take the blogs, uh, feed your book, and then you become a speaker. And as we know, you know, Scott, you know, charges something like, you know, anywhere 50 to 75 K. So Ben Thompson is a kind of like a new breed, right? And I think we could talk about Redmonk as well as some of the other guys that kind of gone the other way. We're like, hey, we just want to be analysts. Like we're not going to go out and start companies and spend 20 years working in industry and then try to write a book. We're going to go the other way. We're going to come out and start doing an analyst and charge what we think are very reasonable rates so that you, Mr. Corporate uh, person, you know, you've got $100 that you could probably expense on your credit card and just buy it directly. And we don't need to, and because we can just write whatever we want, we can write very con concise and uh, analyst information that makes it very, very consumable to anyone. And, and we're not going to really work with any type of editor, right? We're going to, you know, shoot from the hip, do what we want. And I think we're seeing this more and more. And I think, you know, just as a kind of a quick aside, I think you see this a little bit as well in sports, right? I think, you know, people, getting to the points of like, I just want to write a sports newsletter that I think is really, really interesting. Um, sometimes it's around gambling. I think investment firms probably and investment people have been doing newsletters for years. So it's really, you know, if you will, it's Ben Thompson's attempt to apply this model. And I, I don't know, Kote, I don't know what you think, but like he's probably the most successful lone wolf analyst that we've seen, at least in the five years. I can't think of another one. Can you? No, no, I, I think I think in our tech space, yes, and and well, I'll I'll say two things. One, so I think yeah, the simple answer is yes. In in the, um, he doesn't he's not really an enterprise tech person, but let's just say the the 
popular tech coverage without going too Apple crazy, <laughs> right? Like, so he doesn't fall down the, uh, the, the, the hole of just talking about Apple all the time, though that does come up. But he more, he more covers like when, when normal people think about the tech sector, the companies that they want to talk about, right? So all, all the great popular companies. And, um, and, you know, as an example of that, he'll talk about Amazon as related to retail. And then maybe once a year, he'll talk about AWS, Right. And, uh, you know, that might invoke some uh, some IBM stuff. And early on, he did uh, he did a little he did a lot more talking about uh, Microsoft because he'd worked there. But I would say, you know, he's the percentage is maybe from my perspective of things like maybe 70 percent consumer tech stuff and then 30 percent, you know, what we generally care about enterprise tech stuff. But, yes, yeah, so in that area, even in both of those things, I think I mean, yeah, I would rate him as like the most successful analyst. Definitely. As rated by, um, well, new analysts definitely as rated by revenue, right? And and probably absolutely as generated by whatever that is revenue by headcount, <laughs> since there's only one of them. So, <laughs> right. and also he basically has no costs since the, since the, I mean he has costs, but his costs are minuscule since as he's noted several places that you get uh, free healthcare in Taiwan, right? So it's just like probably by profit and top line and bottom line revenue, he probably is the most successful now. Uh, you know, I, and, and I'm hedging here because if you if you look at I don't know Red Monk revenue anymore, but you know their revenue is actually pretty good. But it's a whole it's a different sort of thing. And then conversely, um, the second runner up is uh, is this guy Horace Deju or you know a Simco as he as he's better well known. And it's interesting. Like I don't actually know what Horace's business model is. Like it's very unclear, and he doesn't talk about it. I think now. He works for like a Clay Christensen think tank and I guess gets paid for that or something. And maybe he did consulting. But the other thing with, with Horace is his his output has – it seems to have dropped off. I mean I feel like it has. But more importantly, his topics haven't expanded much beyond Apple and driverless cars, right? So when Apple was on the ascension in, in popular knowledge, like Horace was like the expert at, at covering all of that. Like he had whole new perspectives on it and things like he's kind of like, for me, defined how you would think about Apple's rise from a strategy sense. But um, I think he's pulled back a lot more, ironically, I think, to work on a book. <laughs> but um, yeah, that, I mean, that's a long way of confirming that. Like, I mean, I, I look at Ben as like, in in this uh this lone wolf analyst model he's probably the most uh the most successful probably still like i mean he's he's really figured it out yeah i haven't seen many people there was uh i'm trying to look it up here there's somebody that attempted to do it for the enterprise where they would do seven articles and even had a podcast but he just recently shut it down uh just because it couldn't didn't get enough you know, oh social, yeah i should look that up yeah there's there's also uh, what was his name I can't. I'll look it up okay. in a second. So, so there, there is, there is someone trying to do something similar. Um, Derek Harris, who used to work at GigaOM and then at Fortune, and uh, I think it's like Architecture.io or something like that. Uh, but he's not really an analyst. Like he has some commentary that's good here and there. Like last week, he had one that was basically like, "Hey, if you work in tech, you should probably stop making fun of Mongo because if if they're successful." you will be successful, which was a different type of analysis. But, I mean, I don't think his stuff is really the same sort of thing. And indeed, kind of covering the market landscape here, this space is, uh, is fraught, which is to say if you were, if you were taking a VC angle on it, um, 
other than investing in buggy whips, this would probably be the last thing on your list you would want to invest in. <laughs> right? Like, like it, like, and, and I, I think the, the case there would be like GigaOM, right? Which, which really tried to, uh, do some analyst stuff there. And it's just like, it's very, like, I don't know what Gartner acquired the Burton group for, or like L, when Gartner acquired L2, like Scott Galloway's thing, but I imagine it's not a great way of investing, uh, your cash. So, um, you know, it's admirable that that Ben has. Uh, you know, it's not an overnight success, but that he's he's built such a, a business out of it. Yeah, and I think you know his commitment right here is to really be independent and be one person. I think what all these companies, whether it's GigaOM or you know, maybe you can comment on Redbox, it's like there's always this tension between growing and just profitability. So it seems, and you know, Ben has talked about you know other opportunities he has given up because he is to his credit and maybe to his detriment he is solely focused in on i write these newsletters i charge the newsletters that's it right like he's yeah i think at one point he did some speaking they pulled back on that he's written a whole to- uh, post called uh you know books versus something but basically he explains why he doesn't want to write a book and and so i mean there is sort of like a commitment to like this is the model, but like I, what will be interesting to watch will be as he becomes more and more popular at some point, I think potentially his speaking fees, right. Would, uh, make it get so high that it actually would make sense for him to like cut back on writing the newsletter. Yeah. And give speeches. So we'll see how dedicated he is. And now of course there's some other things in his life, um, you know, about like living in Taiwan and probably wanting to be around for his kids where he doesn't want to travel yeah. all that much. So, so we'll see. And, and I think you know maybe we should just dive into like what yeah well not 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 to be not to be annoying but but let's let, let let's uh, even though before this I was like hey Brandon you should run this one and then here I am but uh, I, let, let let's let's get to the point of the the format of what he does because I think that's that that's the 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 most interesting thing but I think it is since people often ask me this and and it's good to talk about I think it is worth focusing on what you were just hitting on is the lifestyle angle of of analyst right and how that how that drives not only like the way you run your business, but also I think the way the content that you produce and therefore as, as a reader, the way that you should kind of like, if you're listening to this podcast, as you like doing the way you should overly interpolate and think about, uh, that content. Um, and so, um, you know, uh, having listened to him for a long time and, uh, to kind of, to kind of lead up to this and, and, uh, talked about him and stuff like that. Like he lives in Taiwan they had, whenever the garbage truck comes, it plays this fun little musical thing, right? He, uh, he's got kids and a wife, and he basically, like, the impression that you get from two angles, I'm kind of reading into it, but I would assume that, just like the rest of us, that traveling is not only, well, the primary reason traveling is bad, especially if you're in Taiwan, is, like, you're going to, like, not see your family for a week, Right. Uh, and, and that's annoying <laughs> and, and not good. And, and I remember hearing on the Bill Simmons podcast that his kids were like seven and 10 or something, which, or something like that, which, you know, I'm sure it's always good to see your kids, but I, I, my theory is that until your kids are like in their early teens, it's probably a good idea to be around them as much as possible. Right. Uh, you know, like my kids are, uh, uh, like four and seven and it's, it's, you can kind of tell that the amount I travel isn't necessarily cool. Um, so you've got that. Now, the other thing that I kind of detect about about traveling uh, for him is because of the model he has uh, where he writes four, I think he writes four, let's say three or four things a week, 
Like when he's traveling, you can't really write that unless you're like really, really good, which I don't think anyone is. <laughs> like you either you either have to write it ahead of time or you've got to be like, I'm going to go sit two hours in this airport and write this and publish it, which, you know, I've forced myself to do that here and there. But if, you're, if your primary business model is you have the one person who's writing four really well done uh, articles a week, like traveling is not good, right? Like it's, I think... It's probably possible if you're a reporter and you're just kind of like cataloging the facts that you have, but he's not a reporter, right? He puts in analysis and lots of research and things like that. So I think this gets to the lifestyle thing is like the choice he has is I want to just write things, right? And maybe do one or two remote calls a week, right? You can't even really do that many phone calls when you're doing this kind of thing. So but that does lead to like an extreme amount of flexibility in in your life uh basically right like it's it's not even the benefits of working for yourself it's that you can probably get away with you know working 3 or 4 hours a day if you do it right <laughs> right and so like and 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 the better you get at it um the longer you're sort of in this an analyst thing where all you're doing is writing the less and less time you have to work each day. Like you might end up working like your six, seven hour, eight hours a day, but you accumulate so much knowledge. And he kind of talks about this in one of his podcasts, right? Where he's got this bad, bad tick of self being self-referential. But as he said, and I find this to be the case with me is like, you more or less remember every single thing you've written. And so you have this huge body of experience and knowledge you can draw from. And you can just be like, you can spend two or three hours and write something and kind of be done for the day. You spend another hour catching up on news. So there's a very important lifestyle choice that's being made. Um, and I don't know. Some people, you say that to them who are running their own business, and they're like, what are you talking about? I have to work 80 hours a week. But may, uh, you know, I, I get the feeling that that is, that is a, uh, a thing there. And so what that means as a consumer of sort of lone wolf analyst stuff is um, – there's either two things. One is like their business model, somehow they got to get money, right? And the thing that's phenomenal about Ben is he's actually gotten people to pay him in a high volume way for his content. And here to now, the only way you would get money is through advertising, which doesn't work for this kind of content. Or you would basically get uh, vendors, so to speak, to pay you most of your money. And then that, of course, like slants and biases uh, your coverage, you know, even even the way even if you try to do it the best like it's hard to if someone gave you like fifty thousand dollars it's hard to like rip them a new one <laughs> you might decide just to write about something else so in deciding that like i want to sit here and write stuff right and then also i want to marry it with the business model of uh, a high volume you know hundred dollar subscription a year like it's 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 interesting to note like the style of writing that he has the topics that he picks and um, I don't know, it really informs the thing that you can't really like go see him talk anywhere. And I don't think you could do much consulting with him uh, or things like that. But I don't know, I think I think that it's good to be cognizant of people you're reading, like the the, the lifestyle that they're choosing uh, in, in their business model. Yeah, I think and I think clearly those benefits, you know, the non-monetary ones is, is why he's so devoted to this this specific model now we'll see though like i said like we'll see four or five years go by his kids are teenagers yeah. and like you know the travel isn't so good or for some reason he moves back to the united states you know just maybe more profitable and i do think this is always it's always fun to like you know when you read things kind of back to back you know one thing 
you know, Galloway, when we reviewed him last week, Scott Galloway said it was like, you know, don't pursue your passions. You know, that's crazy. Pursue something that makes money. Like, <laughs> yeah, here's yeah, an example yeah. where like, I think Ben Thompson, like had passion for writing, had passion for strategy. He did something that probably everyone told him was wrong and he's been successful. Now, of course, like, does that mean everyone's going to work out? But no, but clearly for him, it did. So like, he was somebody that was rightfully smart to be like, yeah, I'm going to move to Taiwan. I'm going to start uh, a great uh, tech newsletter and make you know a ton of money and like if you had told me that before you went i'd be like no way so but yeah you made it happened so and, kudos to him and then, and then one last thing on that that i think is interesting is so there's this i think it's in the ezra klein interview that 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 you sent over to me he talks about uh i don't know how to scale this business <laughs> or how to grow it right and and i think i think the mindset that i'm projecting onto him it does have this issue of you have one worker who sort of like knows all this stuff and is really efficient. And then also a consequence of that is that you have a, I don't know if it's ever narrowing, but you have a narrow set of topics that you can talk about, right? So as with you, uh, I'm sure, having read Ben Thompson for like three years, I'm sort of like bored with most of his topics because I've read them, right? And, you know, he covers new stuff and things come up, but it's sort of like he covers the same ideas and um he he has the same core of ideas, and as news items happen, he sort of reflects how those fit into the ideas. And every now and then, there'll be something that's like genuinely new. Like as with any thought leader person, the first year or two when you read them, like everything is fresh and new and is amazing. But after a while, it becomes sort of like the same thing over and over again, and in not a terrible way, but in a way where you can skim things instead of reading them in detail. And so the scaling issue is part of, of that lifestyle choice of if I, if I wanted to cover more topics and produce more content, I would have to start managing those people. One, I've got to get the funds to pay them, which may not be such a, so much of an issue with him. I mean, I think that $200,000 is a early 2016 estimate. I don't know when, when he plateaus off, but you've got to get the money to hire someone. And then you also have to manage them, which is going to suck up like probably 20 or 30% of your time at least for like six months, you know, or so, unless you hire the right person. So that necessarily means that this type of thing, the topic base is very small and doesn't really grow that much for good topics. Now, of course, you can go out and cover things you don't know anything about, but then it's not very good. But again, it's sort of that decision of like, if I don't want to like bust my ass, like you get the impression that Galloway, however you say his name, would be like, I woke up at 4.30 a.m. and did my CrossFit training, and now I'm in here to win, 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 and like, like all that kind of stuff. So he seems like someone who, who would be doing that, but uh, I don't know. I don't get the, the, the notion that like Ben wants to uh, spend all the time doing that. You know, like, neither would I. Uh, but So to that end, what, what do you think the general MO that he operates under is? Yeah, and I, I think we should maybe start with like why – I want to start this time with like why do I like Ben Thompson? Why do I like mm. read his articles or listen to his podcast? And I, I'll just say that like – because sometimes analyst information is – I think sometimes view it as like it needs to educate you on some subject and teach you a bunch of stuff you didn't necessarily know, which is fine. I mean there's nothing wrong with that and there are certainly pieces of analysis that do that. I actually find the thing that's interesting about him is – having him go through and make an argument about some type of recent event, right? Essentially put together a strategy and critique it, right? Like whatever happens, so like Facebook, in this case, we can talk about uh, Facebook buying uh, TBH, right? To be honest. And so what I think, what I envision, like when I read something from Ben or I listen to his podcast is 
literally being in the MBA strategy seminar, right? And like, we've all read the case. Like, so like, you know, like if you're just in tech, like you're going to understand that, see some news, like Facebook bought TBH, it's this, they paid this, and they generally said they're going to do X with it, right? So what I find that's good about Ben Thompson is like he will then make an argument like it was a good idea it was a bad idea it was a good idea and give you five reasons why it was a bad idea and what I like about that is like while obviously I'm not talking to him as he's talking through it or I'm reading him like I'm immediately thinking like do I agree with that like if we were in class together and he brought up the point like in this case he thought like hey this this is uh potentially going to be anti-competitive they should not do this right that's a point i think you made in this recent one is i immediately think the opposite like well do i do i agree with that why do i agree with it or why don't i agree with that what would i you know what would my counterpoint mean so i find it sort of just as a very engaging mental exercise and i think everybody that works in technology and certainly in type of strategy type role right it's just a way for you to like work through a case right without having to like actually be in a room with a bunch of people doing it is you can kind of just read him and think of your own answers. Sometimes you agree, sometimes you disagree. And to me, that's like the real value of it. And I think this is something that's very popular. Um, and another way to think of it too is so much of like, you know, there's this idea of news is like, you know, news versus editorial versus advertising. And it's like, you know, I, I think I've gotten to the point where like, I'm okay accepting news and then immediately having someone commentary about it. In fact, that's kind of the way, even like in sports, like I don't really want to just like, if I'm going to watch something, I don't want someone just to tell me what the score is and move on. It's like they tell you what the score is and then people make like an argument like the team played well, it didn't play well. Right. Because that's kind of more fun to watch. Right. Because like, you know, once you have the information, you're kind of processing it. And it's just an interesting way to learn. So I think to me, that is the value that the newsletter as well as his podcast bring is it forces me to think about current events. If I don't if I'm not educated, they'll do like a quick piece like a, a setup. So I'll know about it. And then I get to think through the strategy as well. And I think that's just always very, very helpful. Yeah. So, and, and, and I think, I think that's, I think that's a good point to, to highlight is that I don't know if this is true, but my, my gut, my instincts tell me that over the years. And so therefore right now, and probably into the future, if you want to be a, a, a lone wolf analyst, this phrase I, I accidentally made up at the beginning, that what you have to do is take very strong opinions on things you're covering, right? And maybe take is the wrong word, but you have to explain, you have to take a side and sort of like tell people what you think about that. And it's interesting, like, um, more or less, I think this is true. I don't know, you tell me if you disagree, but like, you read someone like a Gartner or a Forrester, and Forrester's a little better about this, but it's really hard to figure out what they actually think. (laughs) <laughs> like they I think they've been forced over the years to show their work so to speak like kind of be more analytical with things like the magic quadrant and stuff like that that it's it's really hard to like without paying them for a strategy day or something to kind of wheedle out of an analyst like yeah but what do you think of this right like is this good or bad and and you know an analyst face to face will kind of tell you these things but it's not it's not part of the business model for an analyst to take a very strong position on something like you could look at uh, in my space, right? Like you would probably be hard pressed to, to have an anal to in general, this is like the average. If you asked an analyst, should I use uh, Kubernetes, VMware, Docker, OpenShift or Pivotal Cloud Foundry? 
And in the same way that Ben will have a very strong opinion on something, the analyst probably won't give you a very good answer <laughs> that has a strong opinion, right? Um, and so, in, you know, in, in comparison, right, like someone like a Horace Deju and usually someone like Red Monk will give you like these strong opinions about things. And definitely some of the other hangers on in this area uh, will, will do that. Um, and I think it is, it's almost a necessary part of the format and what you're going to do if you're now one of the, uh, the big analyst houses. I agree. And I think where what we're seeing is like I kind of call it like the weeds business model. Right. And, you know, and that's sort of a reference to another podcast. I know you and I both like the weeds from Vox Media and what they do. And I think there's lots of examples of this is there's like a slight like provocateur to it. But really, let's take the weeds. It's like typically they will take an issue of the day and then you know, often, you know, Matt Iglesias will kind of outline it like and he usually knows like a tremendous about like a tax policy or healthcare policy or whatever so they'll quickly outline it probably in two or three minutes but then they will go on and almost always have a very strong opinion about like this doesn't make any sense especially Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff on any of the healthcare stuff like very knowledgeable as they're making their argument I'm always learning a lot of stuff I didn't know and then I'm hearing them formulate why they think it's a good, you know, good policy or a bad policy. And this, like, and I think this is something that happens in lots of different areas. I think the, the, obviously the pod save America guys do it in politics, like some podcasts I like to listen to for like, in uh, like college football, like, you know, if you will, kind of the same idea, it's like podcast ain't played nobody, right. Where it's a bunch of guys that aren't, they're going well beyond just like, this is what happened. They're like, this is what happened. This coach should be fired or this program isn't doing well. And these changes need to be made. And so there's a real market, I think, of of both presenting the, the facts quickly, but then offering very detailed analysis that these people have, right? But before it was just never available in a broadcast medium. Is that like these were these topics are just too narrow to get, you know, yeah. gigantic audiences. Like ESPN isn't gonna talk about this or like um, you know, if you watch any of the political shows on Sunday morning, right, there's only like three or four minute interviews. They're not gonna spend an hour on, you know, the upcoming tax plan. And and that's really what that I think Ben and all these guys have discovered is that like if we keep it small enough and the cost down that we can find an audience big enough right to to really support this and so this is where it kind of comes back with to Ben like Ben's structure is pretty well I think understood at this point is he's you know he starts with a current news item then he likes to take his previous thoughts right usually a lot of times it's ag aggregation theory or things that he's kind of come up before about how he's critique strategy well, then apply that framework to the current news, right? And then it will usually, and this is the part that's maybe the weakest part of his argument, he'll typically say something like his previous thinking and framework really fits this news item, right? And you're like, well, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But then he'll follow it on with a really strong take, right? He'll say like, this is wrong. Like Facebook is should be regulated like a utility, like a very, very strong uh, take. So that forces you to have almost some kind of involuntary emotional reaction. You'll either agree or disagree. And so, you know, and then, you know, he kind of kind of follows that over and over. So like every piece is doing that. And then what he's gotten to the point, which I personally don't like, I just don't like the writing style of it, but like he will often like block quote himself in his own pieces, <laughs> right? Yeah. Which then, which is, I guess good at the beginning, right? Because to your point earlier, Cote, you said something like, you know, once you've read it all, you kind of know where it's going. But he's, I think, trying to, you know, give you some context back. But 
it's really, I, I don't know, I find it like an incredibly distracting uh, writing style. And why like, so, so I think again, like if you think of the piece more like as uh, a provocation to think through a news item and like what some of the strategy discussions are, I think that is the way to think of that newsletter. Like, do I agree with everything or do I think like yeah. uh, the CEO of Apple should just read his newsletter and make decisions? No way. And I think his current, you know, piece, there was even kind of a takedown by some of the A16 guys, A16Z guys. Uh, about like, well, if, if you said, if we actually did this, we actually regulated Facebook, like there's a lot of questions, like what's a social network? How you, you know, like <laughs> they just kind of like outline like the thousand questions that you would need to figure out if you're a monopoly. So clearly he hasn't answered that in like a thousand word piece, right? It's just not possible. But so I think that's where you have to know what you're getting, right? Like I think a tool to help you think about the news of the day and help you think about strategy, it's really, really good. Is it always the most informative about like the decisions to make? Probably not, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, and 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 uh, I, I mean it's 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 uh, it's fun that you mentioned the the block quote thing, right? To use the HTML tag for it, and to do a bit of a uh, colonoscopy on that. To really like examine it, I, I don't know how to talk about what a colonoscopy is. Maybe it's an oscopy without the uh, the poop part. So pardon that. I was trying to think it, but uh, I think I think that that's an interesting thing to like do a close reading of and ask what's going on there. And as 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 a writer of stuff like this myself, um, one, uh, it's fun to quote yourself, and then you don't have to rewrite that. <laughs> <laughs> right, like you don't necessarily have to summarize it again and do things like that. Now, I tend to not quote myself very much, and instead, I'll, I'll I'll use a link to refer back to something. But I have noticed that apparently I'm one of the few people in the world who actually uses links. Everyone in my my life, my publishing life, has always told me not to use links. Like they really don't like links, so I have to assume that people don't follow it. And so. One, there's that sort of like, I don't want to have to rewrite this or reformulate it. I just want to refer to it. And I think, and again, I'm making all of this up, but the other sense that I get is that this block quote thing, which, by the way, I find extremely annoying as well. I just scroll past it, even if it's not his own quote, because he, well, this is the point that I'm getting to is many of the times he quotes something, he could have reduced it down to maybe 10% of, of what he quoted, especially when it's external sources. Um, but my sense is that he each he wants each thing to be like a report, like a self-standing way that encompasses everything that, that you would need to understand it, right? And in that sense, I mean, I'm kind of sympathetic to that in, in the, the notion of I need to have this entire section, five paragraphs from the press release that outlines this thing. Or I want to quote the entire thing that I wrote last time so that, you know, you have the entirety of it. And I mean, I, I think there's a certain uh, comprehensiveness and buttoned upness to to the the style and the content that he has, that sort of leads you down the path of like those extensive, really annoying quotes, which, um, again, I find annoying. And and I think you know, there's tactically he makes this point to uh, he says this to Ezra Klein. I listened to these interviews today, that's why I remember them. But you know, he says uh, I always tell people that the most important article someone reads is just the second article they read, right? Uh, and, and that mentality comes from, if you're growing your readers, right, um, you're going to be assuming that lots of the readers you have, as you were mentioning, they haven't come across this before. So you kind of want to, uh, show off and bring them the new content. And so, I mean, I wouldn't say that it's a terrible use of stuff. I mean, I see why he does it. And, and I think it's good to understand how he pulls those, those assets in to kind of like make the case. But yeah, it gets really annoying after a while, especially if you're reading it on a phone, Right. 
on this yeah. little screen. And I mean, that's I, I don't want to get down this rat hole, but it's interesting as an exercise for the listener to think about, because I've been thinking about this recently, is like, how should I be formatting my text so it's easier to consume on a phone? And 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 I don't I don't I think what what I'm curious in is less about the formatting. I don't know what the word is there, but like the arrangement of the writing, right? And I don't mean making the writer more writing more concise, but like the way that you arrange. I don't know the the way that you um, figure out how to write something. Like how would it change with the screen size? But anyways, yeah, his, the medium there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think you know if if anything that. Uh, the block quotes that he uses and some other things that I think in his writing jump out is like you do see a little bit of weakness of the lone wolf uh, person here is that like if I, I think his writing could probably be two to three times better better with an editor involved right mm-hmm. like I I haven't and I don't mean like a copy editor I mean you know I've, I've only worked with like I would say like real editors a couple of times I know Kote you've got a little bit more experience but you know while we make fun of them I think or maybe we like to make fun of them um you know having someone say like you know you kind of got lost in this paragraph here or like i'm like confused as what you're saying or like you know because i think most of the time like those black quotes if you gave them to an editor they'd be like they'd point out some stuff like listen i think there's like one nugget here you're trying to say so just stay it again in one sentence and not yeah. uh not quote yourself and then at the end right i mean i think it could be very easily um, he can ref like he could because I think an editor would say, listen, each piece is going to be strong enough to stand on its own. And then at the bottom, right, you can always put related articles. And then you're that way because I think what an editor would say is like, listen, you're like you're trying to like drive this reader to a conclusion. They're in a stream of conscious. But if you have these black quotes, you're like almost forcing the reader to stop. And these are exit points in your article. Like there's a chance people aren't going to get to the end because you yeah. do this. So like be like I, I think an editor would both be tough love and also maybe pump you up and say, listen, be confident enough that when this piece is done, it'll stand a strong enough end to end on its own without these big black quotes. And if people, and if it was good and it will be good, then at the end, people will click on related articles. Yeah. And, 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 not, and don't, and don't yeah. be afraid of that. Don't be like, totally. I, this is like someone trying to jam it into the headline. Like I do with newsletter. Don't be worried about it. It will come. Yeah, and I, and I think related to that, and then we should close out on the, uh, on, on, on the, how the podcast fits in all this. I think, to do to do more English professorial stuff on this, um, one one way of looking at whether it's the readers, so to speak, or the writers, it doesn't really matter. But the, there's an interesting relationship to the text being generated by one, the amount of block quoting that happens, right? Like this this cherishing of the existing work that's been done, right? Like the text, you want to bring it all in and include it, right? Um, and I don't mean that in a narcissistic way. I mean more of like how this whole experience is valuing the work, right? There's all sorts of literature you can look at that really values itself and the context it draws on and references. Like there's this body of work, this ecosystem you're drawing on from. Like, you know, infamously James Joyce is like, you know, a, a reference to literary stuff from the last 300 centuries, every word or something like I'm making that up. But so there's a lot going on there. And and as another evidence of that, um, uh, I, I don't know exactly when, but he uses a lot of footnotes. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's a lot yeah. of asides and footnotes and things like that, which is indicative of two things. One, so I, on the reader side, I really appreciate footnotes because I think like that, right? Like I think 
when I was a teenager is when the web came about. And so I think it must have like affected my brain somehow because I think in hypertext, so to speak, right? Like this notion that you're always moving around and connecting these things together. So I love footnotes and like finding other little things. And, and also someone who uses footnotes thinks they have something valuable to say in them, <laughs> right? Like right. They, they are aware that it's distracting, but they can't quite make themselves get rid of it, right? And whereas frequently an, an, a, an editor will kind of reduce things like that. But it's, again, interesting to reflect on what's going on with all the text there with the footnotes. So you brought up the, the editor point, I think, is a good, a good way to get into the podcast because uh, to take a strong position, I mean, it it doesn't really work because Ben never goes back and edits his stuff. He's more of a Heracletian, like you know, my content is a river. Hence his his non book thing. But his his podcasting straight man, Jane, what's his name, John Allworth, he sort of acts as an editor to his ideas. In a, he's kind of like I would be as a straight man. He backs down once someone starts talking to him. <laughs> but he uh, he does do a pretty good job if you listen to the the weekly podcast of of doing kind of a little bit of that editorial stuff around the ideas of like I don't really understand what you're saying here and like how about this and how about that and um, I think I think the addition of the weekly free although sponsored this year by Mailchimp and uh, various other people um, it's it's a very key part of the overall model and content structure that's going on here, um, and um, I think usually the way it works is is they pick they pick a very topical item to go over, or um, or whatever the free article was, and they discuss that article, and it's it's almost like. Um, while well, you're listening to a podcast, so you know what a podcast is, but it's almost kind of like the director's commentary of, of this article and then a discussion between the two of them. And it, and it helps that, um, well, not that it helps, it makes it valuable that uh, his straight man, uh, Allworth there, is also like an MBA head himself, right, and thinks about all of these things. Um, and then a very, a very minority amount of the time they go meta and they talk about like Ben's business or, you know, like transcendental meditation or things like that. But um, I think... I think you've had some like interesting insights into the way that they use podcasts that you and I have talked about over the years. So like, how do you, how do you figure the, the podcast fits into the, uh, the lone wolf model here? Yeah. Well, I think it just comes back to like, what is their funnel? Right. And I think, um, in the case of Ben's much like, I think, you know, to go a little meta, our pot, our little podcast here is like, I think probably most people are introduced to his writing through some type of piracy. Like someone just forwards, the actual newsletter they thought was interesting to some friends. And that's obviously a way for people to get to, to know it. But then what he does, right, is then every week, to your point, right, he publishes one free article. They then publish a podcast about that article where it's James Allworth, who um, is a Clayton Christensen disciple. He actually co-wrote um, Christensen's book, like How Will I Measure oh, yeah. uh, Life? Yeah, so yeah. you can like, you know, he's very you know, both a published author and a very... I love, I love that my favorite part of that book is at some point, and I'd read this in anecdotes, uh, like like Clayton Christensen's, one of his main points in the class is like, you should avoid going to prison, <laughs> right? Like, like I think like, because he went to college with some of the Enron people, or I don't know, but it's, it is yeah, a... Yeah, uh, several of them. He, he yeah. does. Several people from his, uh, his Harvard business class ended up in prison, which was like, yeah. So, but the business model is always interesting because this is just another thing that just shows like, hey, there's just no right way. So for them, it's really free blog, free blog post, a podcast that is really supported by small indirect revenue through ads. But really what they're trying to do is to get you then to sign up for the paid newsletter. And as we talked about before, you know, Ben doesn't want to write a book and he's, 
either doesn't do speaking or he does it very, very little, right? So his, his you know, golden goose is this newsletter and that's his obsession, right? Whereas we could just contrast that with Galloway, who's just the opposite, right? Like, you know, we get a free newsletter from him. I think we get two, in fact, right? Like once, you know, every, every week we get a bunch of free videos, but then he, he needs to be paid to come do some consulting. And of course, his recent book that we reviewed last week is on sale, um, which is, again, another way that he gets paid. And then finally, I think my guess is the lion's share of his revenue comes from these keynote speaking fees. So yeah, and, you know, it's and, always and, one and, of those things. And, and also, his company was acquired by Gartner, so he's got the, uh, the equity thing yeah, going on. Yeah, so he, whatever. you know, There's obviously some equity in the consulting thing became a company, which became an acquisition, right? So to your point. And I think you know, clearly, like, you know, to like go real meta, it's like if we were to like analyze Ben's model, like just to like say some stuff he could do is like well listen as he becomes a more well-known person he could bring on another writer right to come on and like do some of the writing for him like you know kind of different days or mix it together and that would free him up to do some more public speaking and then the most meta meta comment i can make about it if we wanted to go even further we could apply aggregation theory to ben's model himself and say what he could do is like hey are there some newsletters where he could team up with, right? And if they were equal size, right? Like the, the let's say the Michael Cote newsletter was on par with his business. It's like, well, what these guys could do is pull together and maybe charge $11 for a bundle, right? And start to aggregate some of the top newsletters together because there's just this point, right? Where, which we're all reaching with like how many different, you know, um, things are you willing to sponsor? So that would be another thing for him to actually try to apply that. Like, who are the other two or three top newsletter writers, and like, could they could they come up with a subscription that actually makes them more money? So you know, it'd be interesting, right? I think for for him to challenge himself, like using his own things, like there are ways to scale this business, yeah. um, and you know, it'd be interesting for him to do it. But I think what it always comes back to, and what they spend so much time talking on this podcast is like every business is different, every situation is different. And what you can and cannot do is very situationally dependent on the factors that are around you. So he's done a great job. He looks to be, I think he would say like, there's a little halo effect, I think, going with Ben at this point, like, hey, this is something other people can do and newsletters are a way to make money. But I don't think, you know, <laughs> I don't anticipate there being hundreds of or thousands yeah, of people yeah, doing yeah. this. Um, so he's sort of, you know, he found he found the right timing in the round in the right niche. Um, but I don't know how quickly you could apply that um, to just other people. But we'll, we shall see. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I'll say two things on that, and then we could, and and then just a little more, and then we'll wrap up. But I think one, there there's a uh, very, it's not telling, but but a very accidentally astute point that he makes, and I think he kind of says in seriousness in that Ezra Klein interview, where Ezra Klein asked him this this question you just stated, and he's like, well, first you need to have really good content, and Ezra, of course, is like, oh, is that all? <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, right, right, like, like, <laughs> no problem. Everyone's got that. So, I mean, I think, I think there's two things that I've, I've noticed, and you know, being involved in this for like, I don't know, ten or twelve years or whatever is, yes, you need to have very good content, which is very hard to do, right? Like, getting the time, analytical ability, communication ability, but more importantly, like access to information uh, that allows you to like do something that's done really well and is smart and people want to read. It's hard to set yourself up for that and to be able to do that. And um, I, th- I think, I think second, um, like you still need to get a big break. Like it's like anything else. Like 
you need kind of either a series of small breaks or a big break that takes up you know that big hose of attention and kind of like plugs plugs it into you at some point and he talks about that in his history that like you know he had like and i remember these articles when they came out there were like three or four microsoft pieces uh that were really good when when balmer was leaving and buying nokia and so those were like good breaks that he intimately because he had worked on mobile product strategy at microsoft like he knew exactly what was going on with a lot of those things and because he had a strategic mindset he knew microsoft strategy well so he knew this content very well, and so as things were happening, he could write about it. Now, not to be all like sour grapes guy, but like uh, I have, I, I had, and still have a similar sort of knowledge of the way Dell works, right? And especially when they were going private, it would have been really nice for for me uh, in the same way to like writ- have written about it. But like it probably would have been illegal uh, and you know unethical, not to mention that, right? So. Getting in that situation where you intimately know something like that and therefore can like write about it, um, I mean that's that's a type of a break, and then you get noticed by people, and you know you see the same thing with um, people like Horace, right? Where like his his analysis, like if I remember, he was one of the only bloggers maybe ever that was like in the usual roundup of what equity analysts would say every quarter about Apple. Like he would do forecasting and stuff. It was crazy, um, and so like. He was like very, he somehow got a, because of his unique way of looking at Apple and analyzing their numbers and explaining how their business was actually operating, whether or not it's true, explaining a model he thought of how Apple was operating. Um, And he got noticed and Apple was very popular at the time. Like he got a break into that scene as well. And I think Red Monk was kind of like this, that in the early 2000s, no one else took open source seriously. And then all of a sudden, like they got a lot of attention. And you'll notice recently this is another overnight success five or six years in the making. They've been doing this programmer index, the programming language index thing, where every three or six months, Redmonk does a ranking of, of, of programming languages. And at one point, Apple started referencing it for Objective-C in their quarterly calls, and that was another nice break that Redmonk had, right? So in all of these cases, right, of course, you need to be very good at the content, but I think it's uh, equally important You've, you've just got to get lucky <laughs> or, yeah, and I think this, or, or, know, or to speak strategically, you need to manufacture many lucky moments. That's so right. That and I think this kind of goes back to the Scott Galloway thing and looking in here is just, you know, he goes on to say like, you know, don't follow your passion, you know, go out, try to make a lot of money. And it's like, well, what so often is happens is like people set out to make money by just following the trend of the day. And then there are just all the examples you just mentioned, right? Like I'm, I'm going to throw one more out. It's like the guys that, you know, Gimlet Media, who were making, you know, I think a ton of money with podcasts. It's like, well, you know, the guys that were doing that were at This American Life, which is, you know, basically was a nonprofit, although I know it's not a nonprofit, but, right, right. you know, essentially like walking around with microphones, interviewing people about like what they had for dinner. And, you know, they spent 20 years doing this with no idea that like, you know, that radio would leave the podcast, which leads to these you know, big businesses that they've created. So I think it just kind of comes back to like this notion, maybe to take Scott's advice and twist it a little bit is like become an expert in anything that's always going to give you an advantage. But then at some point to really make it, what you need is the public interest to come to your expertise. And that will then generate a tremendous amount of money. But it isn't like being in your 20s and be like, well, I know in 25 years from now, 
this thing podcasts are going to be great and I'm going to spend 20 years making public radio. Like nobody knows that. So that's why yeah, I yeah, always yeah. like I caution people to be like chase the money while the money may not be there. Yeah. No, and so. and and the uh the um the Pod Save America people are another example of whatever exactly. theory this is I'm putting together is they worked in the Obama White House. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So so they know how the system works and then they sort of switch roles. Right. They come on the outside. And so they can they have all of this subject matter expertise and domain expertise and they can very quickly bring it to bear on like whatever the current issue is. Right. And, and so it's even funnier in yeah. their example, because they, and then, know, of course, they, that, can get, they can get Obama to come on there. Right. Podcast, well, that, right? of course. Right. It, uh, but it's even funnier because the thing they desperately didn't want to happen was the thing that ultimately led to all their professional success, right? Which is funny, right? So, <laughs> yeah. you know, they spent their whole life trying to to promote progressive causes and candidates and then, you know, conservative Republican candidate gets elected and then boom, right? Now they're, they have these huge businesses. So again, it's back to, you know, no one can predict these things, uh, but being an expert, right? And listen, is what given them the advantage. So like, I think that's always like decent advice. Um, but even that, like I'll counteract myself like, well, you know, sometimes just knowing a lot of stuff about a lot of subjects also helps. So yeah. don't, you know, none of these things. And this is back to like, be, you know, do your own thinking, right? Maybe that's the end of this podcast is like, Ben is a way to like think through issues and do your own thinking. And I think all of these things, you're better off, do your own thinking and then make your own decisions and go from there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think, I think if you're interested in uh, thinking right about the tech world, uh, there's, there's few better examples, perhaps no better example than Ben for it, right? Like he's uh I, I admire him and uh, and respect him and and I'll be honest, envy him <laughs> as well. Like oh, maybe may, maybe one day if I get some equity payoff, my envy will lessen. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think what what he does is great and uh, it's it's good stuff. To do my standard disclaimer of like I just said a bunch of critical things and actually I think it's fantastic. So with that, this has been another episode of the Software Defined Talk Members Only White Paper Exegesis Podcast. I don't know if I got that in the right order, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, you know, you must already subscribe to listen to this, or you got a pirated version. All I can say is if, 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 you're, uh, if you really like this episode, it'd be great if you refer it to other people. I actually found myself, someone was asking me how I put together a presentation, and I, and I wanted to be like, oh, you should listen to episode four, <laughs> where, where we talk about my talk. And uh, I almost hustled him to sign up, but uh, I'll see. Maybe he'll email me and I'll send it to him. But uh, anyways, uh, if, if you think you know other people who might like it, uh, help us get our big break so that we can get a fire hose and uh, get, get more subscriptions. And, and also, if you're, if you're only giving us a dollar or something, which is greatly appreciated, maybe you should upgrade to $5. You could be really creative like the, uh, the jokesters who like to give us $4.20. I don't know, know what that number means. I would have no idea. But uh, you can come up with some creative numbers as long as they're like four digits. That would be good. Uh, figure th that domain of four-digit numbers, wide open. Just go crazy there. Uh, and, and again, if you want to, uh, it'd be great if you came uh, and joined our Slack and just puttered around there. It's over. If you go to softwaredefinedtalk.com slash Slack, you can uh, sign up for that for free. I mean, not for free. Automatically. You don't have to wait. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye.